0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing. However, you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, it's old timey crimey. Do
1: you like true crime? Do you like history? Do you think murder's just better in black and white? Come join us on Old Timey Crimey, where every week we sit down and talk about a crime history forgot.
2: Or maybe a crime that history can't get enough of. From the classics, like Jack the Ripper, to the crimes
0: you may never have heard of, like the Tottenham Outrage. We dig deep into the archives to give you the details you won't get anywhere else. And we'll
1: probably use some filthy words in the process.
2: Because the good old days...
1: Weren't always so good. New (laughs) episodes every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: That's old, timey, crimey.
1: An Uptown Girl Vanishes. I'm Jason Horton. I'm Rebecca Lieb. And this is Ghost Town.
2: On the afternoon of December 12th, 1910, New York City was busy, crowded, alive, bustling like usual except for one thing. A famous, beautiful heiress had vanished in broad daylight. This is the story of the disappearance of Dorothy Arnold. Dorothy Harriet Camille Arnold was born the second of four children of perfume importer Francis Rose Arnold and his wife Mary. The Arnold side came from William Brewster, who came to America on the Mayflower. Claim to fame. Dorothy was the second oldest. She had an older brother, John, and two younger siblings, Dan and Marjorie. Arnold's father was a Harvard University graduate. He was the senior partner of FR Arnold & Co., a company that imported, quote, fancy goods, think uh, perfumes, luxury beauty items, stuff that not a lot of people at the time could afford. The Arnolds were incredibly, incredibly wealthy and very embedded in New York's elite society. They were listed in the New York City Social Register and enjoyed pretty much every privilege one might have in New York at the time. As a teenager, Dorothy went to Velton School for Girls, which was a private school on the Upper West Side, preparing rich New York young ladies for fancy women's colleges, which is exactly what Dorothy did. After Velton, she went to Bryn Mawr College, where she got a degree in literature and language. Dorothy's greatest passion or dream was really to become a writer. So when she graduated in 1905, Dorothy moved back into her parents' home and got to it. Naturally, her parents were more focused on her getting married and less thrilled that she wasn't doing that and wanted to write. In the spring of 1910, Dorothy submitted a short story to McClure's magazine. It was rejected, and Dorothy's friends and family pretty much, like, tore her a new one. Very, very mean, very... Maybe appropriate for the time, but just, like, a lot of really bad ridicule for someone who, again as a woman, wouldn't have had an easy time in that career to begin with. Dorothy, to her credit, refocused and doubled down on her budding writing career, setting up a P.O. box to secretly correspond with publishers and avoid her family's scrutiny around writing. Dorothy also asked her father if she can get an apartment in Greenwich Village so she could concentrate on improving her writing, but he rejected that idea very quickly. Quote, a good writer can write anywhere, he said. Sure. That fall, Dorothy submitted another story to McClure's, which also was rejected. She was pretty upset about the second failure, and when she disclosed the news to her friends and family, again, they were really, really harsh and teased her and judged her for it. On December 12, 1910, Dorothy told her mother she was going out to buy a dress for her sister Marjorie's coming out party, kind of debutante ball thing. According to the Arnold family, Dorothy had approximately 25 to $30 cash in her possession, which is around $700 today, give or take. I'm not great with conversions, but it's a, f- a fair amount of money. She wore a tailor-made blue coat, a straight-cut skirt, and an ornate black velvet hat adorned with two white roses and a pale blue lining. She carried a large fox muff to warm her, preparing her for the cold New York afternoon. So very, again, very upscale, very fashionable, very, very moneyed. Dorothy's mother offered to go with, but she declined. Her mother was ill. Dorothy was fine going alone. She said goodbye and walked out of her house. Dorothy first stopped at Park and Tilford store on Fifth Avenue where she bought a box of chocolates. She then walked to Brentano's bookstore where she bought a book of humor essays called Engaged Girl Sketches by Emily Calvin Blake. She left Brentano's around 2 p.m. and ran into a friend, Gladys King. Gladys said Dorothy appeared happy, that she seemed genuinely excited for Marjorie's debutante party. Gladys had to go meet her mom at the Waldorf Astoria because of course she did, and Dorothy told Gladys that she was going to take a walk through Central Park. King last saw Arnold on 27th Street shortly before 2 p.m., where she turned to wave goodbye for a second time. Again, she seemed really happy, normal, cordial, social. As one newspaper remarked, She disappeared from one of the busiest streets on earth at the sunniest hour of a brilliant afternoon with thousands within sight and reach, men and women who knew her on every side, and officers of the law thickly strewn about her path. That was the last time anyone saw Dorothy Arnold. As dinnertime approached, Francis and Mary started to worry. Dorothy was pretty typically punctual, and she was not home yet for dinner. They called a couple of Dorothy's friends with no luck, so they just waited. After midnight on December 13th, the day after, a woman named Elsie Henry, a friend, called the Arnold home to see if there was any news about Dorothy. Dorothy's mother Mary answered and said that she had come home, but couldn't come to the telephone because she had a headache. Of course, this is just kind of Dorothy's mom saving face. Dorothy had not come home. We still don't really know why Mary lied to Elsie, but it kind of makes sense. They were, again, a high-profile family, and news of a missing heiress would be pretty scandalous. The next morning, though, nobody could ignore the situation was getting fairly serious. Dorothy still hadn't showed up or called. Francis contacted a family friend and lawyer, John S. Keith. He came to their home and searched Dorothy's room, finding nothing out of place other than that she had some burnt papers in the fireplace and, sadly, some more rejection letters and a couple of brochures for a cruise through Europe. None of her belongings were missing, money, items that could be sold, items that you would need to, I don't know, maybe disappear. Still, the family wasn't completely panicked yet. A year before, Dorothy had actually lied and said she was going to visit an old college friend. In reality, she went to Boston to be with her boyfriend, then boyfriend, kind of current at the time boyfriend, a 42-year-old engineer from a well-to-do Bostonian family named George Griscom Jr. They had met when she was in college, and of course... The Arnolds did not approve of him. Which made sense. He was nearly 20 years older than her. He was thought to be kind of unmotivated, 'er ne'er-do-well. Francis, when accused of later stifling his 25-year-old daughter, said this. Quote, I would have been glad to see her associate more with young men than she did, especially some young men of brains and position, one whose profession or business would keep him occupied. I don't approve of young men who have nothing to do. Again, a 42-year-old dating a 25 year old I don't think a lot of dads would approve of that, to be honest. But you can kind of see the judgment around this. You can kind of see that he felt poorly about what was happening and the high standards that he had for his socialite daughter. After her jaunt in Boston, the Arnold's forbid... Dorothy from ever seeing George. So naturally, the Arnolds suspected that he had something to do with her disappearance. So George at this time was in Italy when Dorothy disappeared. On December 16th, 1910, the family sent a telegraph to George in Italy asking if he had any idea where she went. George insisted that he did not know where she was. The Arnolds were not satisfied with that answer. Mary, along with Dorothy's brother John, went to Italy in January to talk to him face to face. They met him in his room at the Anglo-American Hotel in Florence, Italy, on January 16th. During the visit, Mary and John demanded that Griscom give them the letters that Dorothy had sent him, which he did. John later claimed that the letters contained nothing of importance and said that he later destroyed them. George, then in a moment of kind of vulnerability, professed his love for their beautiful daughter and promised he did not know where she was. For that answer, John punched him in the jaw. So... John Keith, the lawyer that was committed to figuring out the mystery, got on the case. They did not want to call the police still because they didn't want to get authorities involved and draw attention to it. John Keith searched every morgue, hospital, and ship port for the missing heiress and found nothing. He needed help, some backup, so the family hired George S. Doherty, head of the Pinkerton Detective Agency, who opened a private investigation on her. Through all this, Dorothy's father again said no police, which was... Honestly, a huge failing on the part of the Arnolds. It was for social reasons, like I said, avoiding public scandal and, you know, just trying to keep them under the radar as much as possible, but to the detriment of the case, obviously. Doherty searched for Dorothy for six weeks, but couldn't find her. When they were unable to locate her, the private investigators suggested that it was finally time to call the police. In mid-January of 1911, months after her disappearance, Francis called the police at this point, the police were unable to find any new leads or clues. They advised the Arnolds to hold a press conference as the case needed the very thing the Arnolds were trying to avoid, publicity. On January 25th, 1911, Francis Arnold held a big press conference where they offered $1,000 reward for the return of Dorothy Arnold, approximately $30,000 today, which honestly still feels low. The media went wild. The police received thousands of tips and reported sightings of Dorothy, all dead ends. As Francis feared, the Arnold family also received two ransom notes asking for $5,000 to return Dorothy and threats against their other daughter, Marjorie. They were hoaxes, thankfully, still incredibly terrifying. A week after the press conference, George Griscom returned to the States. He told the press that he intended to marry Dorothy once she was found and on the condition that her mother approved the marriage. Mary later told reporters she would never approve of the marriage. Later in February, the San Francisco Chronicle reported that hotel clerks of the hotel where Griscom was staying had seen a veiled woman they believed to be Arnold. According to staff, Griscom and the veiled woman had an earnest talk they could not hear and that the woman appeared, quote, greatly agitated. In the months following the announcement of Arnold's disappearance, Griscom spent thousands and thousands of dollars for ads in major newspapers asking her to come home. Still, the case of Dorothy Arnold remains unsolved. We'll get to the aftermath and some theories after the break.
0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1: Today's episode is sponsored by Best Fiends.
2: Though we love what we do, Jason and I don't just Google true crime and weird history all day. Sometimes we need a freaking break. That's when I close my computer and pick up my phone for a little Best Fiends. Have you heard of it? You should because it's gotten over 100 million global downloads. We're huge fans of it, and you should be too. Best Fiends challenges your brain with fun puzzle levels, but it's not like this huge thing. It's casual. You can play one level or 17, whatever time allows for. There are enough stresses in our life right now. Don't let a game stress you out. Best Fiends is also a game anyone can play, literally. It is for adults, but honestly anyone can and enjoy themselves let me break it down best fiends is an awesome mobile puzzle game and honestly different from anything i've ever played it engages my brain it's fun and is whatever type of commitment you want it's solo maintenance you don't even need the internet the internet speaking of internet i was playing best fiends just to chill one day i'm close to level 200 and my power went out and honestly i did not even notice i played and like relaxed and i was off the grid and it was so fantastic I only noticed I had no power or internet when it came back on, and I had to get back to whatever I was doing at the time. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends.
1: Hi, hello, how are you? Hi. How are you doing? Oof.
2: How are you doing?
1: The year is underway, full the swing.
2: The year is underway. We're in the year.
1: We're in it. We're living it. We've gotten some very nice Apple reviews. That's good. It's Apple reviews are my kink. Is that, mm, is that yeah. fair to say?
2: That's what that's what people say. I
1: read a couple. And thank you to anyone who's ever given us an Apple review on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't yet and would like to support, it really helps. There's a couple of stinkers in here. <laughs> Most of them are... <laughs> Pretty good. You got to have a couple. The first one is Ghost Town is story worthy.
2: Story worthy? Worthy uh, of a story?
1: I was on a podcast, Story Worthy, for like the third time. Oh, really? Yeah. And Christine Blackburn yeah, has always been very cool, always lets me go on her podcast and talk, talk about haunted stuff, Talked a lot about Ghost Town, talk Man. about the book. And you can listen to that at storyworthypodcast.com. Oh. All worked in there.
2: That's great. A different I, angle?
1: I heard Jason interviewed on Storyworthy by Christine Blackburn. I had to check out Ghost Town. I liked it, and I was pulled in. The format is a great way to learn more about stories I'm unfamiliar with. I don't read Rolling Stone or watch 48 Hours or have Reddit. Me either. Yeah, I don't do it. This <laughs> and you can get Reddit whenever you want to, by the way. It's not, uh, but I don't know. I guess Reddit is a thing you really need to, even though you have access to it, it's, Its own thing.
2: Yeah. And also, once you go down that path, it's like there's no coming back. Do you want your day or do you not want your day? You're
1: better off. Yeah. I'm so glad to learn these stories that are intriguing and disturbing. True. Both of those. And that was from M. Temple. Next one. Great.
0: I was you never know know
1: if that was a great. One of the best podcasts i found. Every story is interesting. The amount of research they put in is unbelievable. They've made a lifelong listener for sure. Oh. Uh, that's Mike G. So five. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks,
2: Mike
1: G. One says stop chatting.
2: Oof. We barely – I wish we had more chat, and I think we barely chat.
1: Yeah, to some people, it's too much. But yeah. understandable, some people don't like that they're accustomed to listening to podcasts that just kind of go straight through, and I, and I enjoy mm-hmm. those too. But there's a lot where I like the chat, and I've gotten very yeah. invested in, in the people, and I think exactly. there's a little more investment in, you know, the, us doing the podcast and the people listening as compared to some of the other ones that are, you know, a little, just a little more informative, a little more like breaking down things in a news which i love but you know and and if i started chatting i'd be like wait no i just want to hear more but Mm -hmm. when you know what you're getting yourself into you kind of take it as it yeah i
2: mean my favorite murder does an hour chat up front we're not them no (laughs) but
1: no we're not even people so we're
2: barely people yeah that's true
1: this one's my favorite podcast. Absolutely love this podcast. I never wrote a review before, but I had to stop and write one for this. I do Aww. a lot of driving, and this podcast has been a lifesaver. Jason and Rebecca keep me entertained and educated. Listening is so much fun, and there's always a topic I'm interested in. Definitely worth a listen, or better yet, just subscribe. That's from Jason Horton. Nope. <laughs> oh,
2: that, that oh is no! From,
1: uh, Morganza Extravaganza.
2: That's a beautiful one, name for a beautiful review. It's
1: <laughs> the one and only. Let's see. Here. These there's are here.
2: warming my heart.
1: Gets me through the morning commute. This is my favorite podcast right now. I listen to an episode every single morning on my commute to work and I always hey. look forward to it. There are many more true crime podcasts that I can't get on board with. This one has become a bit of an addiction. Ooh. Amelia J. Getting hooked on the stuff.
2: Amelia, we'll keep supplying you if yeah. you keep keeping hooked.
1: Yeah. My new binge listening. Stumbled on your podcast and been hooked since. Interesting subjects. I love that it's factual and not speculative or made up stories. That's from Fawn Girl. Thank okay. you. in Great Britain
2: oh oh rad
1: and the next one is lovely great podcast for easy listening love the down-to-earth format less of a serious factual vibe than other podcasts (laughs) this is something i can lie down and relax which is great especially when the times are so stressful people ask for less ads and chatting the ads help them make money so unless you're paying you really don't have the right to complain and the chatting is part of their style question mark yeah it is it is
2: i would argue my whole style
1: it's an overall great show that I truly don't think deserves all the hate. Keep up the good work, guys. That's from Elia eighteen hundred.
2: That's great. A robot I built. Oh. <laughs> you'll you'll stop at nothing. I love that it called us down to earth too. I, yeah, I, I like I feel that. very grounded. I feel very down to
1: earth. You can just say poor. You sound like you, yeah, sound, you poor. sound poor. You sound mm-hmm.
2: like you're recording this in in a tiny cubicle. Yeah, There's literally a taped dish rag above the window so that when the sun comes in, it doesn't hit me in the eyeballs.
1: This one's – okay. Yeah, listen. We can take some criticism. I like it, but four out of five stars. Tell me anything. I'll do it. I'll do it. I love the storytelling, but I don't like how you chat and advertise in the middle of the episode. (laughs) And if if you want a little history, it's the new year. Here's a little history. We used to – we were figuring this out as we went along. Yeah. We did it in the beginning.
2: Yeah, we would chat in the beginning. I would chat too long about a lot of things. Which is b- f- bad. I think it's bad.
1: And now we saved it for the, the middle. middle. So you kind of know that we're going to put all that in there and you mm-hmm. can just skip past it if you want to. We're not offended if you do, but that's the, the nature of it. And a lot of people, despite what we get review-wise, people do like it because and it's the same reason I like some other podcasts yeah. so it's not going anywhere but it's not meant to be combative or it's not meant to be we're not doing it at a spite.
2: Yeah, no, I mean I, I enjoy that too. That's what gets me invested in other podcasts. Not only the content, but I think getting updates about the hosts keeps it timely, keeps it interesting, keeps me coming back for more. That's just me though, you know?
1: It is just you. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> Because if you (laughs) stop and did less of that, I would give it five stars, but we'll take four. You don't realize we've gotten one star for really not a bad review. So it's like, yeah, I I know. Sometimes
2: it's like great podcast, one star. And I'm like, I, that's the worst one.
1: Yeah. I understand answers. I understand that it hurts when you get a bad comment, but I feel you're not taking the advice behind the rudeness. (laughs) What you have to understand is it's not, we're not actively not taking the advice, but for starters, we're doing this because we enjoy it. We're not employed yeah. by somebody. It's not It's not a government mandate to listen to this. Yeah. We enjoy it. It's how we've been able to do it for over two and a half mm-hmm. years where a lot of podcasts wow. don't last that long. And now it's been two episodes a week. We're almost sitting like 300 episodes soon. That's crazy. And to have that, there needs to be a little bit of balance. There needs to be an authenticness. And I think if we st- – if we changed every time somebody wanted something different, it would yeah. always be different. I wouldn't
2: even be on the podcast. <laughs> it would be too <laughs> difficult. My voice, first it would be like I would be sitting there silently because they didn't like my voice. Then they'd be like, get her out of there. <laughs>
1: and the politics. But no more. It's it's everybody wants something a little bit different yeah. and I understand that and I get that and your opinion is very valid, mm-hmm. but we are always 100% authentic and it it, it hasn't been always to our a betterment, you know, we could cater more and work out, work that thing sure. out. But, but I think the people that you know, the real ones out there would hear would hear that it was. They could hear that it wasn't the real deal. You know what I mean? Yeah. The real whatever deal this is that we're doing. So whatever
2: it is, we're
1: but- not doing. It's not. We're not active. We've taken. Listen, that's why we moved everything to the middle, and yeah. we've taken. Plenty of advice, and we wish we could be everything to everybody. For sure. Instead of being no one to no one, which is where – that's our level. Yeah, it's mostly
2: like our baseline. But I also think we don't talk as much in the middle. I mean, now we're discussing it, so maybe I'm being hypocritical. But we talked a lot before, and this is a good five minutes of straight to business, do some reviews, check in, and we're out.
1: Yeah, and then we're back in.
2: Then we're back in. <laughs> me stumbling through the rest of the episode.
1: They're still talking to us. I feel like you're ignoring any and all constructive criticism. Oof. Completely untrue. You, you, there's subtle changes that we've made over, over time that if you'd have to listen to every single episode to to hear those changes. And that is why you're getting the bad this is the mm. best worst this is the most we're paying for these stars. Yeah, I right know. Now.
2: It's like we're getting notes on a script from this person.
1: If you begin to take the steps to do this, you will have less bad comments and more five-star reviews. That's from Taco Kitty, 13 from the United States of America exercising first amendment rights. God bless. <laughs> and not and not wrong, but it's you know like if everyone had other people do things the exact way they want them, no one would have it the way they wanted them. Mm-hmm. It would be too difficult because there's a lot of people that we, we've gotten plenty of messages going, Hey, I'm here for this. Yeah, uh, agree. This is why I'm here. So don't change it. And you got to, we do have like a fair amount of listen. I mean, I don't know if people think maybe we have like 10 people listening. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, our, our listen, our, our total listen, uh, listens. Is deep deep in the millions.
2: Yeah, we're doing a lot of things wrong, but we do some things right. We do
1: some things right, and you know, I'm never really going to talk about this because it's not really very important. It doesn't really mean anything. But you know, you'd be like, hey, please cater to millions and millions of people. You know, over many many episodes, it's too hard. And we, you know, there's a point where we're just like, we just got to be ourselves, do what we think is right, change what we can change, and hope that it we always hope that it gets better. And, you yeah. know, it's always our goals, you know, to do different things technologically or getting the word out there or, or doing different things. And, you know, especially right now, pretty limited. So, but we're always kind of, whenever <laughs> we're not doing anything to be like, Oh, let's stick it to taco. <laughs>
2: no, but this, this is a very heartfelt yeah. uh, monologue that you've been on yeah. about like the, we're doing the best we can. I,
1: t- I take this, I don't take us very seriously like no. or at all, but I take, the podcast very seriously. Yeah, definitely. I I don't think we're. I don't take us seriously Mm-mm. even. Let like, we to you know. I was like we're nothing but the podcast because there's so many things happening. There's so many people listening. It is. I believe it's beyond us, and it's these stories that are very varied. Yeah, right. There's a lot of different things, and I think it's that's kind what of the. Like, it's very <laughs> very varied, but you can you know what falls into it or not. So if yeah. so many things happening, it's not us that's mm-hmm. why like our opinions are like not like the forefront of anything like our agendas aren't the forefront it's just i don't know being us and being real and if you want us to be fake we will do it for If price. you for, for money yes <laughs> yeah. we will do it for a free product
2: yeah please i'll uh, lie
1: i'll tell you anyone anyone if you give us a, here, a box of yes.
2: produce to make meals with you know we'll do it
1: tell me i'm a six Watch what I'll do for you. Tell me I'm a six. Yeah,
2: yeah, true. true. Watch what I'll do for you, But DM Jason. Tell him he's a six.
1: You know what I mean? And Code it's like, word six. And it's like, I don't want to hear these ads and this rambling. I'm going to run over to <laughs> patreon.com slash ghost town for bonus episodes, <laughs> advanced ones with no ads. No ads, baby. Kind of stoked. I think we're going to have another documentary episode coming up. Another oh, bon- yeah. Love it. Excited for that. want to say hello to anyone who's a- listening and anyone who's a patron. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. And- I want to say thank you to our government. Mm-hmm. I want to say hello to Brandon Gaddis. Hello. We want to say hello to Ben Forsyth. Hi. We want to say hello to Ashley Matson. Hello. Our mayor's governor Chris Witt. <whistles> also, have a new video of it linked in the show notes, or you go to youtube.com slash jason horton. 1950s housewife on LSD. <laughs> check out the video. <laughs> what? Go on a wild ride with me and check that out. And <laughs> please subscribe to the to. YouTube channel. It's really just out there to promote Ghost Towns. So you're really helping promote Ghost Towns. I want
0: to see the
2: housewife on LSD. I I want. I'm intrigued.
1: Yeah, it's from an episode of Strange Year that I turned into a, a video. Kind of ed- edited a, a video. It's I pretty wild.
2: It. I can't wait to watch it. Yeah, it's That's the, news to me. Yeah, 1950s. 1950s. Um, <laughs> Let's go back to 1911. Maybe?
1: Yeah, we can go back to 1911.
2: Okay, okay. No LSD in this story, but we're going to get back to this missing heiress. Back to the Arnold family, which again, they are still... They searched, they searched, they searched. They spent over $250,000 searching for their missing daughter, but they could never find her. By Valentine's Day of 2011, they made it publicly clear that they thought their 25-year-old daughter was dead. Still, District Attorney Charles S. Whitman offered his assistance to the Arnold family with their efforts to locate Dorothy. But Francis, Dorothy's dad, declined. Mr. Whitman thought he misunderstood and explained that, again, he intended to set any and all of his detectives on the case. But Francis said... Quote, please don't, please don't. We are not looking for Dorothy any longer. And that was the the end of things, essentially. They stopped looking, everyone's efforts were done, and the family kind of collectively decided that she was dead. Francis Arnold died in July of nineteen twenty-two and his wife followed in September of nineteen twenty eight. Francis left a will explaining, quote, I have made no provision for my beloved daughter, Dorothy H. C. Arnold, as I am satisfied that she is not alive. So what happened? There is no evidence Dorothy ran away or that she died, but there's also no real piece of evidence that she was live like living. It's just like she was gone. So here's a couple theories that I found, and again, some a little bit more believable, some very of the time that I think are powerful to to discuss, even if they aren't the real answer, which, again, we don't know. One theory was that Arnold had slipped on an icy sidewalk, struck her head, and was in a hospital with total amnesia. I love a good amnesiac explanation. It's probably the most out there of the plausibility of what happened to her. There were no women matching her description in the hospitals. No one who had sustained a concussion. No one, again, very few people have amnesia. So it's kind of hard to believe. She may have fallen through the cracks. Who knows? People discuss that one a lot. Francis Arnold, though, her father, absolutely, without a doubt, thought that Dorothy was kidnapped and murdered. He thought that until he died. In particular, he had a very specific theory. He thought that she was attacked in Central Park when she was taking her walk there and dumped in a reservoir. He said two clues led him to believe this. He said this publicly during his press conference, but he didn't say what they were. He wanted the police to drain the reservoir at Central Park Lake, but both bodies of water were frozen over and had been for days before Dorothy went missing. So it didn't really make sense that she would have drowned in them or there was a body in there because they were pure ice. It was a cold winter's day. He might have believed that she was kidnapped and murdered because in April of 1916, a man named Edward Glenoris was serving time in Rhode Island State Prison for extortion. In prison, he converted to Christianity and wanted to confess all of his sins. Uh, Fairly typical of a conversion, to kind of come clean. He claimed that an acquaintance asked him to transport an unconscious woman from New Rochelle, New York, to a house in West Point. He was met with two other men, one named Doc and a finely dressed gentleman who... Some believed to have been George, Dorothy's boyfriend. On the drive, he was told the unconscious woman was Dorothy Arnold. Later, Edward said he buried Dorothy in a cellar. After giving the location of the cellar, police found the area where he was talking about. There was broken cement, but it was too small for a body. It didn't make sense that anything was buried there. The new owner said the hole was simply access to a gas pipe. So they dug a little bit around there, revealed two gas pipes, but no sign of a body. Mary also at a certain point thought her daughter was dead, but she held out a little bit more hope than her husband at the time. She was sure that if Dorothy were dead or injured, any morgue or hospital employee would recognize her. I don't know if that's just this woman's upper-class New York privilege that her daughter would be immediately recognized if her body had been found, but her body was never found, and none of the numerous sightings of Dorothy have ever been confirmed. So some people think she was still alive for many reasons, one being maybe she wanted to free herself of the pressure of New York high society life. The most compelling evidence of her being alive was that in February 1911, again, that's really close to when she went missing, a postcard arrived at the Arnold home, postmarked New York. It said, just I am safe and closed with Dorothy's signature. The writing appeared to be very, very, very close to Dorothy's. But again, Francis, her father, insisted the author merely copy Dorothy's penmanship. I'm not sure who would know the Arnold's address or if that was easy to access during that time. It's hard to say. But it's probably the most compelling thing that she had just kind of cut out. Wanted to give her parents a little bit of, you know, peace of mind But again, maybe it was a hoax. There was a lot of people coming forward saying that they had tips on her and her whereabouts, a lot of evidence, a lot of mail that went to media outlets and the police. Another theory is that Dorothy died during an abortion. She was still kind of seeing George at the time secretly. And of course, her family wouldn't have approved of a pregnancy. They didn't want her to get married to this guy. So of course, they wouldn't have been super happy about that. At that time, many doctors were giving women, especially women of means, abortions. In 1914, high profile abortion doctors, Dr. C.C. Meredith, nurse Lucy Orr, and Dr. Lutz were arrested for running an illegal abortion practice in Pittsburgh. According to Lutz, Meredith disclosed that he performed an abortion on Dorothy that she didn't, and that she didn't survive. After Lutz's claims, Meredith confessed that he cremated her in the hospital incinerator. So it's a, it's a very tragic thing, but also, again, hard to believe because there's, some evidence that disproves Dorothy was even pregnant on November 23rd, 1910. Dorothy spent Thanksgiving with her friend Theodosia in Washington, D.C. The next day, Dorothy complained that she was sick when her friend became concerned. Dorothy confided that she had had her period since she disappeared in December on December 12th. It's pretty unlikely that Dorothy would have suspected she was pregnant so soon even if she was, and then arranged for an abortion service to be had. But she also may have just lied about having her period. Who knows? The final theory is that she committed suicide. Some of Arthur's family members and friends also said they believed that this was the case, mainly because of her relationship with Griscom was kind of cooling off. The New York world also supported this reasoning after they discovered that Griscom's cousin, Andrew Griscom, had jumped to his death from an ocean liner after he had been forbidden to marry an English governess. So maybe she got the idea from that. Everyone who saw Dorothy in the weeks before she disappeared claimed that she was really happy, positive, healthy, But again, she had a rough time with her life. The writing rejections, the family constraints, and ridicule probably put a lot of pressure on her. When Mary and John went to Florence to confront George, he gave them a batch of letters Dorothy sent before her disappearance. The last one was mostly upbeat, except for this passage. "'Well, it has come back. McClure's has turned me down. Failure stares me in the face. All I can see is a long road with no turning. Mother will always think an accident has happened.'" So a little bit of a clue, but again, we don't have any closure on this. We just have a bunch of theories and no answers.
1: When I hear nineteen ten, I'm mm-hmm. surprised anything can get resolved. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I don't know what. Maybe that's just my disconnection from things so long ago and, and the lack of technology. You know, even though that's, you know, in the context of the time, you know, everything's relative. But I'm really, really not surprised that people aren't found because of the, you know, lack of communication and, you know, different reasons, and of course, you're dealing with high society. Yeah. But I used to work in West Point. Mm. Um, so maybe I'm an expert at this. Or, Probably. Yeah, Are I you going to solve
2: a, this case right now?
1: Yeah, and I used to. I think I dated a girl in New Rochelle once. So. You have so many
2: connections to this case. It's insane. Yeah. Have you been to Central Park?
1: Central Perk. <laughs> oh! <sighs>
0: See why
2: CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work,
0: an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.